0: We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 4 for the next few weeks. We're starting it off today. And I'm wondering if any of you have been in a church service where someone was called out by name for a sin and the sermon was about their sin. I've only done that once in my life. One of the ladies in the church was in Cambodia, was getting very confident that the church belonged to her family, and therefore whatever the church provided in the way of food and gifts was really for her family, her extended family. And she got into a fight with one of the other ladies in the church who was visiting from a fair distance away and had no relationship to them. But she was coming every week, faithfully. And when I looked into the matter and realized that that was the basis of the problem, We had to have a sermon on the purpose of the church, as far as that goes, and I called them out by name, and that made them really humbled and repentant and restored them. And restoration is really what we're going for, because divisions like that in the church destroy the church's testimony, and they can destroy the church's ability to function as a church internally and externally. And we see this here at the end of this letter, not just a sermon that's on sermon audio, but a a epistle that's recorded in the Bible with their names immortalized for all eternity for their problem. So we'll be looking at verses 2 and 3 today primarily, but let us read from the section here. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with me, with Clement, and with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything praiseworthy, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray your blessing on our reading of your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would also bless the sermon to follow, that it would be glorifying to your name and understandable, and that we might examine our lives and our hearts and draw closer to you and be conformed more and more into the image of your Son as we pursue that upward calling in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are a number of questions that come up in this, these two verses that we'll be considering today. Who are these people? What is Paul requiring of them? And how is Paul encouraging them to get to there, get to where they're supposed to be? So first, really, who or what are these people that he's called out by name? Yodia means fragrant or fine traveling, or possibly a prosperous journey. You now, many names have a meaning. Uh, I'm not sure that the meaning of their name has anything to do with the, the issues going on. And the other one, Suntuche, means fate. can mean an accident, or good luck, or a pleasant acquaintance. So you know, names, sometimes they have meanings, but I'm not sure they're too relevant here. Uh I think the most important thing we see from Scripture about these two people is found at the end of verse three, where it says their names are written in the book of life. You know, we are not talking here about questionable believers who may or not may not be saved, you know, professors in the church who might be enemies of the church. We're not talking about the godless outside the church. He's addressed both of those in this letter at different points. But here he's talking about two believers. And he includes these two believers in the large group of fellow workers. And he mentions another one of them, Clement, by name. But they are the fellow workers of Paul, of Christ, working on the gospel, working for the church, working for the kingdom of God. Now, they're presumably women. In some of the manuscripts... They're referred to as, with the word them, in the feminine form, but in the better manuscripts, it's actually just them in the the neutral form, not specifying. Uh, It gets translated, though, help these women. The word is actually them. So it's not as clear as the text makes it, but they're believed to be two women who were having a quarrel, and or having a disagreement or division between them, and Paul is trying to reconcile that matter. He's a long way away. Now, when he says they have labored side by side with me in the gospel, some take that to mean, oh, they must be pastors. But that's a big problem. I know I've read some feminists and some postmodernists on the Internet who've got their commentary on the passage explaining how, you know, us godless Christians don't recognize that these women are pastors. The problem with that interpretation is, of course, Paul is saying something quite different in Scripture. Uh, We know that all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, we look to Scripture, not speculation, as our rule of faith and practice. And Peter says in Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, you know, first of all, know that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, a prophecy of Scripture means a writing of Scripture. Prophecy is not mystical fortune-telling, as it is in our society and in the world today. Biblical prophecy is God giving a message to someone to reveal to his people or to people who aren't his people, to the world. And scripture is considered, therefore, a prophecy because it is God-breathed. And he says, no prophecy of scripture comes about by their own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why am I pointing this out again? We've talked about it a few times. Well, If we're submitting to the scripture and we see it as a word of God given to us to help us to understand right from wrong, to know our left from our right, which, let's face it, as unbelievers, we didn't know. We thought good was what God calls evil. and We thought evil was what God called good. And Paul, the same Paul who wrote this passage and the same Paul who mentions these two women, says in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man; Rather, she is to remain quiet. He then gives two reasons why this is true. First, Adam was formed first and then Eve. And secondly, verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And those are just two reasons to help us understand God's thinking. God has assigned to each person a place. And... Women are not assigned to a place of teaching according to God. Our society, our own personal beliefs may be different. But Paul here is not speaking in 1 Timothy, you know, with that toxic masculinity of a male chauvinist pig putting his cultural beliefs in the Bible. No, it is God speaking through Paul and we just need to accept whatever God says is right. Everything I want is tainted by sin. So, we need to understand that these probably aren't women. Uh, Some people get upset, unless they're the pastor, you know, we're not part of the body of Christ. If you don't allow women to be pastors, elders, deacons, to have authority, then we have no place in the body of Christ. We have no no place with God. Uh, I use that word body particularly because I want us to think about what it says in 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12 through 18, for just just as one body has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink from one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body that make it less a part of the body? I mean, that's silly, but that's what we're talking about. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I, I do not belong to the body. If the man should say, because I am not considered called to the pastorate, therefore I can't be a Christian. Should a woman say, because God doesn't allow me to be the leader, I can't be a Christian? You know, that's, that's what they say. But we're one body. He continues on down at verse 27. One body in Christ, but individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping administration, and various kinds of tongues. Then he asks the question, are all apostles? No, there were 12 plus one. Are all prophets? No, only those God actually speaks to Are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire higher gifts? I will show you the more excellent way. And then it goes into the chapter on love. What is my point? They're not pastors because God has said they can't be pastors. We shouldn't interpret it that way. We should take the clear teachings and try to understand things like examples or names according to them. And in this case, they're not pastors, but they're fellow laborers. Now, can a fellow laborer be a woman? Well, if you think about churches, you know, the Bible-believing churches, yes, you have a pastor, you have elders, you have deacons. Most of the time, you'll have a secretary or an administrator who takes care of business-type things in the church. Uh, You have Sunday school teachers, and we know from proverbs 31 especially that women teach the children is a good thing we we've all been assigned our tasks in the body of christ and we should all be happy about where we are and not complain that oh if i'm not the head if i'm not the eyes if i'm not the mouth i'm not part of christ but doing what he calls us to do i remember in cambodia I had extra people that we don't have in American churches usually. I had translators. I had people who took care of travel. I had people who went around to the villages to find places where we could go. And some of them were women, and it's perfectly fine. They were part of the cause of Christ. If you think about Paul as a missionary, you know he needed people to take care of him. He needed people to take care of the day-to-day activities. He needed a lot of help because... It was a very difficult task. You remember when the deacons were created? The twelve summoned the number of all the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to go serve on tables. There was a quarrel between the, the widows who were Jews and the widows who were Greeks Jews and the ones who were Jewish Jews. The Greek Jews were not getting the help that they needed. He said, "It's not right for us to sit on tables. Pick some some men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word." You know, there were times when Paul worked with his hands and did a full-time job as well as doing his evangelism, his teaching, and his preaching. But that's not ideal. You know, the ideal was he should spend all his time on the word and on prayer, on teaching, evangelism. And other people can serve God side by side with him who aren't doing those things. You know, in some churches, anyone who wants to be a preacher can preach. Anyone who wants to teach can teach. Uh, my father's family was from Quaker background. I went to a Quaker meeting and whoever felt like teaching would stand up and say what they had to say and then sit down. And somebody else would stand up and say, but we tend to think there's a calling. If God has called and appointed someone to be a pastor, you know, we determine that by, well, do they have the skills? Do they have the gifts? Do the people they want to minister to feel they have the skills and the gifts? And we're a little more restrictive and selective about that. And so not everybody who wants to serve God is naturally going to become a pastor. There are so many other important roles in the church and in, in God's kingdom. And these women are serving God. We don't know how exactly. We know what they're not doing. They're not violating scripture because he isn't condemning them for that. So they're not being teachers or lording it over the men, but are learning in submission. We know that part. But we don't know exactly what they do. And at some point, somehow, they've come into disagreement, a quarrel, which has been sufficiently problematic that Paul is addressing it. Now, we don't know, is this just a personal problem between the two that's creating a fuss in the church and becoming a, an eyesore or becoming a problem to the church's reputation? Is it something doctrinal or practical? And we've all heard the jokes about churches being split over the color of the carpet. You know, you've got the green-colored carpet sect and the red-colored carpet sect, and the church divides. You know, is it something like that? Or something more doctrinal? He's already talked about the, you know, the, the mutilators of the flesh, the circumcision sect, and condemned them in this letter. We don't know precisely what their problem is. But they're being called to reconcile, and he calls upon another person. In verse three, yes, I ask you, true companion, to help these women. Now, the words "true companion" there is a legitimately born is the first word, true or legitimate child, and the second one is yoke fellow. Now, if you think of a yoke, and we we saw that in our reading today, you know the ox has put two oxes together, you put a yoke on them, and they can do the work, double the work of one ox in pulling a cart or in plowing a field. And that illustration is used, you know, of Christ. He says, come, take my yoke, it's easy. You know, do the things that I want you to do. But it it can be symbolic of our work. You know, we are yoked together working to plow the field. We are yoked together in the church working to glorify God and advance his kingdom. Uh, sometimes it's also used, though, of marriage. You know, Paul talks about that. He says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Uh, the Old Testament has this long thing about don't yoke a ox with a donkey. Well, it's not very practical, and I don't think anybody would do it. But the principle being, you know, they won't be able to work together. Um, your lights are blinking in your truck. You won't be able to get your work done. And don't be on equally yoked with an unbeliever means a believer and an unbeliever shouldn't marry. So some take it here to be this person, this true companion, as the ESV calls it, or the true yoke fellow, to be the spouse, the husband, uh, or somebody close. But because it can be used of work, probably one of the co workers who's close to them. Now, I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, but sometimes when people are quarreling, they don't listen to reason. You know, We've probably all been there. Uh, I remember years ago, a pastor I was very familiar with, somebody asked me if there was anyone that pastor listened, would listen to because they were having a problem with his you know, yes, 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 and doing whatever he wanted to do and ignoring the presbytery. And my answer was, actually, for that pastor, no, there's nobody he would listen to, unfortunately. But a lot of times there is somebody we trust, somebody we respect, somebody we honor. If they come to us and say something, we hear it. Whereas if the person next to us in the pew says it, goes in one ear, out the other, or maybe we look at them like, what do you get off you know, telling me something like that? We say, oh, you don't understand my situation. Or we say, you know, I, I'm angry, I'm not listening at all. You know, cover, what do the children do? Stick their e- fingers in their ears when they're angry? They're not going to listen to you tell them what's wrong and what's right. And so we, we see those problems in the church, and you can call on somebody, appeal to somebody who they will listen to. Uh, hopefully within the church, that's going to be a pastor or an elder for the person. And that person can then try and work with them and talk to them. So as to the question, who are these people, especially the two that are being called out by name? Well, they're Paul's fellow laborers, they're believers, and they're in conflict. So question number two, what is Paul requiring of them? What's their problem? Quite simply, it's a division. I call on you, I entreat you to agree there's a division, perhaps in the church itself, between these two ladies. There's an opposition. Maybe there's even a faction going on. Oh yes, I follow so and so. And I, what, how does it go? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, they had that problem. Corinth, this was a real problem in that letter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind, and the same judgment. Exactly the same things he's been talking about in the book of Philippians. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? You know, sometimes we have factions in the church, and it's like, are you guys following Christ or are you following men? Uh, I've seen this more in churches. You know, I I like MacArthur and oh, I don't like MacArthur. I like so-and-so. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be people who are present, just authors. And that party spirit, that division happens. And we don't know here, is something like that going on between these two women where they're now leading factions? I remember once at a synod meeting, one of the older ladies in one of the churches came and she was handing out tracts she had written, condemning as godless and apostate churches that don't use the King James Bible. And I immediately went, ugh. And I immediately ran and got the pastor of the church synod was being held up because I knew that wasn't the Bible in his views. He had the new King James. And he went and basically told her, you need to stop being a teacher and you need to stop creating divisions. Sometimes we have those kinds of divisions, but usually... There would be a rebuke for sin. We don't really see a rebuke for sin here. If you're teaching falsely and created a division for it, Paul everywhere, including in this book, is very firm. Be quiet, stop teaching, or get out of the church. You're not allowed to teach false doctrine. Uh, warn a man once, warn him a second time after that, have nothing to do with him if he's divisive. If he's creating a division... We don't see that level of spirit here in Paul. He's calling for their reconciliation. So it seems more like this would be some sort of personal problem. But there is a point of division, and he's calling for them to have one mind. And that's a theme in this letter. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Very important. Living that life worthy of him, you know, avoiding sin, avoiding controversy, avoiding fighting is all part of that. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He goes on to talk about the circumcision sect later, and that's probably what's on his mind here. But note that one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. Everybody in the church should be striving for that upward calling in Christ that he talks about in chapter 3. He continues on in chapter 2, the first two verses. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He is calling them to that level of agreement. There is a division. They are fighting. They don't speak. You know, in bigger churches, you find this. You'll find, you know, afterwards you go to fellowship with them. You'll find there's a group here and a group there and a group here. And oftentimes they don't get along with each other because there's that division over something. The author they like, the color of the carpets they wanted, the way they dress you know, we have the, oh, I wear hairnet section and I have, you know, I wear sunglasses section. And you know, I carry this Bible, I carry that Bible. We have these problems in the church. Division. And Paul is saying, no, have the same mind, the same love in full accord. The same spirit. And so this problem that he's calling them on is being divided one against another. Now note in verse 2, it says, I call you to agree in the Lord. Paul is not saying we should compromise the truth. You know, we have that in politics a lot. The Republican Party wants to go this way, the Democratic Party wants to go this way, and they find something in the middle they can all agree on, and it doesn't really help anybody. It's bad for all of us, but They've agreed. He isn't talking about that. He isn't saying, "Oh, the circumcision sect is dividing you." Well, just add circumcision then and just be done with. No, he says you cannot. If you are circumcised, you are alienated from Christ. You know, he isn't calling for compromise of faith. He isn't calling for compromise on Scripture. He's very firm against that. He's saying, it "Be of one mind in the Lord." meaning mind, having the mind of the Lord, believing what he says, believing the truth that he puts forward. He isn't saying, hold hands with the circumcision sect and just get along. Why can't we all just get along? Well, my answer to that is because we're all sinners, but also because some people are fierce in their rejection of Scripture, and I'm firm in my defense of Scripture. Sometimes it's the fault of men and their sinfulness and the corruption of their heart. And sometimes it's really a division over faith. 1 Corinthians 11, 18, and 19. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. There's at least one faction that is the believers versus the unbelievers that's going to happen and he says that has to happen because the church cannot be perfectly pure uh, we never know the person may or may not have truly understood christ they may be like you know the one who receives it with joy but when persecution comes they leave but the one who receives it but gets entangled in the things of the world and leaves and never really knew the lord Never knew his value. So there will be some divisions. All agreements must be built on that solid foundation of the truth. Must be honest with the truth. We must be of the same mind with the truth of God and with God in his word. If it isn't, then it's compromise, not faithful agreement. It's not having one mind with God and each other. It's having a mind against God. And so we have to be very careful. He He's very explicit, even in this book, in condemning sin and heresy, but calling for unity within the body. What kind of unity in the Lord? Well, not being divisive over you know paper plates or plastic, not being divisive over green carpet or red carpet, uh, not being divisive about Bible translations, not even, as we talked about, being divisive over minor theological matters where people need to learn and to grow. Right? He's already said that. God will make it plain in time if you're a believer. And when he talks about the meat sacrifice to idol thing, he's pretty firm on those people. You're, being, you're wrong. You know, those of you who are saying that meat sacrifice to idol is sin to eat are wrong. But what does he say in Romans 14.1 we read? But welcome those who are weak in the faith. The church is here not to be the stronghold of the perfect, but to be the place where the sheep of God are led to green pastures, where the sheep of God are together, where they learn, where they grow, where their knowledge can increase, and where their faith can be secured and kept safe through the proper teaching of the word. And so all of the things that would distract us, all of the things that would divide us, that are not necessarily divisions, that are not unbelief, that are not false theology. We need to learn to work together. And even if somebody is confused and doesn't understand, you know, we need to work with them and be together, to try and bring them around to one mind. He's not talking about teachers teaching the sin. He's talking about God's people who are quarreling. How does he expect us to resolve this problem? Uh, the answer to question number two, what does he want? He wants us to be like-minded, agreement, working towards the same goal in God, in Christ, in the Word, believing, and living a life for Christ. So what does he, how does he expect them to resolve this problem? Notice he says, I entreat you. I think that's what my translation says, yes, entreat uh, the word here, entreat, means to, to call somebody aside, to summon them, to bring them to you for the purpose of talking to them. Uh, usually for an exhortation. But sometimes the word can be used for somebody begging or looking for comfort or being comforted or trying to comfort. This, the word here is the verb form of a noun that we all know. Now, you might not recognize the Greek word parakletos, but it's in John fourteen, fifteen, and following. If you love me and will keep my commandments, I will ask the fa- uh, excuse me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word helper is the, the noun form of the verb here. Another counselor is another way that passage is translated. And, of course, that's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And so the idea that Paul is saying is, I'm, I, I'm encouraging you. I'm calling you aside. I want you to hear. I want you to understand. I want, I want to counsel you in this matter. Please cease your bickering and be in agreement. Uh, this can also contain in it not just a. An exhortation, but an admonition, an exhortation, telling them you're wrong, you need to stop. And I think that's really the idea we see here, that he's telling them, well, you're not heretics, you're not teaching heresy, you're not teaching sin, you're not one of you in sin, one of you not, potentially. You're having a disagreement, but it's a problem in the church for whatever reason, a division in the church. And so he's trying to counsel them in a loving way, to come to an agreement. The the patience, the long-suffering that's needed to deal with each other is sometimes a lot. The church is small now, so it's not a problem, but if you remember back when the church was big, there were people that were hard to get along with, people who had different ideas, different way of life, and there's a lot of friction and overcoming that friction can be hard. And a lot of times, you know, somebody will do something or say something and it rubs us the wrong way. And now there's, you know, some animosity and it builds on itself and it gets to be worse and worse. And what do we do? Well, the best way is to deal with it. If it's something you can overlook, you overlook it. Forgive, forget, move on if you can if it's sin, you have to try and get them to repent, or you have to repent and tell them you've repented. Uh, what happens, though, if it's something you can't do? Well, you go to the pastor, you try and get some help. He says this, I say this, we don't agree, we're not friends anymore, we don't, we don't know what to do. Well, you seek counsel. You seek a helper, a counselor who can tell, talk to you. Now, what do you do in a situation where two people are arguing? You've probably had this in your own lives. You try to figure out, well, what is the problem? What is the source? Why are you not forgiving each other? Why are you having friction with each other? And you drill down deeper and deeper, finding out what's really going wrong. Then you talk to them about that. Is this sin? If so, somebody needs to repent, maybe both. Uh, Is it not sin? Is it just a difference? If it's a difference, it's not sin. Why are you not getting along? You're brothers with Christ. Are you going to fight with one of Christ's brothers? Are you going to hate one of them? Are you going to resist one of them? Are you going to cause problems for one of them? And that's what the counselor is trying to drive you to think and to see. And that's what Paul is calling on here, this this other person, the person we don't know, the one who's, you know, a truly a true yoke fellow with them. That person is apparently well well acquainted with them. Probably somebody they would listen to, and is probably the one who's going to have to sit them down and talk to them, because Paul is in prison far away, and they can't see him. So this other counselor has to to work on that. To to bring them to agreement to bring them to peace. There's also (coughs) a sense in which we need to understand that it is wrong within the body of Christ to have that division. If it's a division over false teaching, necessary. If it's a division because somebody is a jerk, well, you talk to the jerk. You're the pastor or the elders work with the jerk. And what do we do? Well, we'll hate him until he stops being a jerk. No, we'll show love, patience, long suffering, hoping that the Lord will open their eyes, wanting to see them grow spiritually, praying for their growth. Paul, in this letter, gives us a few other ideas starting with humility. Chapter 2, we spent some time talking about this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, this person is giving me grief and sorrow, and I count their their needs more than my own. How can I help them overcome this? How can I help them be comfortable? Uh, Paul says at one point that I would... I'll give up eating meat forever if that's what it takes to not stumble my brother. You know, sometimes we have to count the other person more important than us and give up something and be patient with them. I know for years there was a pastor back east who wouldn't fellowship with anybody who didn't use the King James Bible. So summer camp, the memorization was done in the King James. And I was like... You know how hard that is for some of us who don't know that language? At the time, I hadn't really been through seminary. And so I hadn't learned to read the you know, the, the Puritans and gotten comfortable with it. But they were being patient. Eventually, he gave up on us and left. But, you know, he, we we're patient. Sometimes sacrifice is needed for peace. And that's the point. Consider others more significant than yourself. Peace with them is more important than my rights and my privileges. What? No, I have a right. Just like Jesus did. Oh, have you read the chapter? What did Jesus do? Well, let's continue reading. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also the mind of Christ, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of his servant being born in the likeness of men. Who had a greater right than Christ? He had a throne in heaven. He had, what, 10,000 times 10,000 angels to serve him. He was due the worship of all men. And he set it all aside. And He came down to earth, born in poverty, persecuted, harassed from the day he was born, pretty much, living in a cursed world, suffering, for the sins he did not commit. And I mean suffering, hot, cold, hunger, thirst, all of the things that we all suffer with, bug bites and probably sickness, everything is due to sin, but he was sinless. He did not deserve that as his punishment. He get, he set his throne aside to serve his people. And what Paul is trying to emphasize in that pasture is, you have a division. Are you willing to humble yourself? Are you willing to set aside your rights, your privileges, your honor, your respect? To see the other person grow in Christ? To see the church have peace? You know, these are all connected together. And we don't know exactly what's going on with these, this, these two people. Um, Some see the entire book essentially is written to these two people's problem. But since the book has a lot of parallels with Ephesians written at the same time, I think, well, that might be stretching a little too far. But these are all things that relate to their problem, certainly, or to the kind of problem they're having. We need to remember to put people in the place they belong. Each of us has our own gifts. And sometimes the conflict comes not because the person's a jerk, but because they've gotten something we want. They've gotten the honor, the respect. They're serving in a place that we'd like to be the one to serve. But we don't have the same skills they have. We don't have the same gifts from God they have. I remember in the choir, there were a few people who grumbled about the choir leader. Ah, you know, I'm better than him. Well, he's been called to that position, and he does have gifts of leadership, He has gifts of music. He has the ability and the skill. And the fact that you're grumbling makes me question whether you would be a good person for the job. I was just singing bass in those days. For those of you who don't know, the guy who sings bass is the one who can't sing. (laughs) They just make you sing low. Uh, But we need to remember where people are in their place and give the honor that's due them even if you might think you could be better, do you have the time? Do you have the will, the patience to do the job? Maybe they're there for a reason. You need to encourage the person who has gifts to use their gifts and not, not to be jealous or envious because he's talked about that also in this book. Do nothing out of you know, jealousy, out of vain glory. Remember who other people are, honor them in their places and look for peace not competition not conflict I remember at work there were always those people who loved conflict between themselves and others and they like to start conflict between people that's not what we do in the church, we try to make peace between people blessed are the conflict makers no, blessed are the peacemakers you now we try to make peace between ourselves and each other and between others so that the church can move along. But peace in the Lord, not peace without concern for the Lord. Uh, we try to ensure that unity rather than the disunity we see in the church. We're told not to look after our own things, but look after the things of others, the concerns of others. You know, a lot of times in the world we say, oh, that's not my problem cross by on the other side of the street and say, I don't see that guy. Uh, We say, uh, what's it got to do with me? Well, if it's in the church and it's your brother, it has to do with you. It doesn't mean we get to be nosy, nosy, busybodies and troublemakers. What I mean is we we should have concern and love for the person and for what's going on. And put people where they belong in in our fellowship if they You know, make use of their gifts, honor their gifts, and make use of our own gifts. Sometimes conflict comes about because people don't want to do some serve. And it's like, oh, we really need somebody to lead singing. And you sing well, please help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, make use of our own gifts, too, can help bring peace and joy to the church and to further the cause of the church. You know... Paul warns us about thinking about ourselves too highly but to have that mind of Christ that even if you are so much better even if you are more knowledgeable, more skillful, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't humble yourself if that's the need. I've told you my story about sharpening pencils for an entire Saturday afternoon. Stop by the church. Oh, pastor, anything I can help you with? I just got back from seminary and yeah, sure. Here, here's a box of pencils. Could you sharpen them and replace all the broken ones in the, in the pews? And I'm like, I graduated from seminary. You got me sharpening pencils. And about halfway through it, I realized, you know, the church is empty except for him and he's working on his sermon. If I didn't come by and sharpen the pencils, the pastor, instead of working on his sermon, would be sharpening pencils today. You know, humble ourselves. That, that really struck me. I wasn't angry or anything. I was willing to work. But once I thought about that, it's like, you know, there are ways to serve. And I don't need to be worried about my power, my prestige, or even my happiness. If I have an opportunity to glorify God and help his people, make use of it. But all of this... It comes back down to having one mind with each other and the purpose of our having one mind. What are we doing? Paul tells us in uh, in, uh, Philippians chapter 3, we looked at it a few weeks ago, verses 12 through 14. He's talking about our perfection, our, our holiness, our striving on, and he says, not that I've already obtained this and we're already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, in this case meaning his life before Christ and all his glory and all his power and all his hopes, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Why are we patient and long-suffering? Well, there's two reasons right here we can avoid conflict and be patient because we're not perfect either and finding fault with somebody else i'm sure they can find fault back with us and the second thing here is we're working together to press on towards the goal right we we provide each other with counsel with moral support with love with patience bringing them together and bringing them forward you know patience and long suffering is, as Jesus said, like pouring hot coals on their head in the end. Not meaning casting them to hell, but meaning it torments them until they realize, finally, I'm in the wrong, and they repent. So what is our problem here? There's there's a problem with this division between these two people. We don't know the details, but in the letter, humility, real humility... Patience, hard work, trying to be of one mind, trying to find that common ground where we can work together and overcome the conflict between us. Uh, As our country has become more and more travel around, we find more and more different people. And if you've ever been somewhere really rural where they didn't have different people, you know, you know how uncomfortable you can feel. And like when I go to the South and they, they pick up on my accent and know I'm a Yankee from Massachusetts, it makes conflict immediately. But we, we feel that. But as we do that more as a church, as we see people have moved to the area, they're different than us. There are those tendencies to have conflict, but they're external. Because there's only one God, there's only one Bible, there's only one truth. On those things, we should be able to find that common ground in that peace and work it out. And I think that's really what he's calling them here for. They have conflict. Why do you have conflict? You worship the same God, you serve the same God, you're in the same church, Your brothers, or in their case, your sisters with the Lord, why are you fighting? Be of one mind. Work hard to be of one mind. And we also need to work hard to be of one mind. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many encouragements in the Word. We thank you, though. In many religions and philosophies, the leaders are somehow portrayed as perfect. In your word, we learn that none of your people are perfect. That we have not yet obtained that perfection, that holiness. And we see real people with real problems and real conflicts and real sins being dealt with in your word. And we pray that that would encourage us to seek to understand them to seek to understand ourselves, to seek to understand our brothers and sisters, that we may have biblical unity, that we may have one mind and one heart and one spirit working all together, cooperatively, encouraging each other to press on towards the prize. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.